I don't believe that photography has lost its power to move people. Um, I do think there are times when images will rise above the noise. And some of that has to do with how the information landscape functions, right? Whether an image has the opportunity to move up through news channels or to go viral. This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today, folks, today we're getting serious. Today we are going to talk about ethics. We're going to talk about responsibility. We're going to talk about all of the issues that surround photography, and especially photography of difficult subjects, with one of the nation's most provocative and interesting and successful scholars. We're talking with Lauren Walsh. Lauren teaches at the New School and New York University. She's the director of the Gallatin Photojournalism Lab. She's also the director of something I think is, is, is really cool, is the Lost Rolls America, a national archive of photography and memory. Lauren is the editor and author of two books that I think are tremendously important for every single one of us to read. I don't care what kind of photography you do. The first is called Conversations on Conflict Photography. It was published in 2019. And a brand new book called Through the Lens, uh, The Pandemic and Black Lives Matter. Lauren, welcome. Welcome to the Frames Magazine podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. Lauren, these books, you know, I'm not a conflict photographer, clearly, but these books have really, really become important to me because of the way you unpack so many of the ethical dimensions and ethical questions that go along with photography, and you do it in a really unique way. These are books of interviews. You go and you find, you know, tremendously successful or provocative uh, photographers all over the world and get them to talk about the background and the questions and, and the problems they face in their own work. Before we get there, though, tell me a little bit about your background. How did you get interested in photography? How did you get to be, you know, the director of the photojournalism lab? I've been interested in photography for a very long time, both using a camera and, and very much um, for a really long time. I've also been thinking about what is the role of the photograph as a slice of history, essentially, and thinking through its many uh, it's many forms, right? It's it's evidence, it's historical record, it's uh, kind of raises ethical problematics, it's documentation, it's personal memory, it can be fun, it can be serious. So I've been working with photography for a long time. My PhD is in literature, but specifically literature that incorporated photography in its pages and trying to understand the relationship between words and images when you put them together in a novel. Though my PhD is in literature, upon graduating and getting a job as a professor, I felt myself pulled more and more and more into contemporary events, current events, and started working rather immediately with photojournalist. So I see myself very much as a scholar, as a cultural critic, and as an editor um, who works alongside photographers who are 
sometimes grappling with these kinds of questions and always covering these kinds of issues. Um, And so that gave rise to what I teach and what I focus on in my classes. And it gave rise to founding or establishing the photojournalism lab at NYU's Gallatin School, because I really wanted a space where I was teaching photojournalism, but with a very heavy emphasis on what is responsible, ethical documentary practice? What does it look like? What does it entail? What should you think about? You know, it, it, you're, you're speaking to the choir here because, as everybody knows, my day job is I'm an English professor. So <laughs> I, I'm enjoying your background there quite a lot. Do, do you subscribe? Is all photography narrative? That's a great question. I guess at some level, all photography captures a moment and that moment can give rise to a narrative. Um, I mean, you know, there's our own in our own lives and you don't have to be any sort of professional photojournalist. I think nearly all of us are taking pictures with our phones and we're we're doing it because something feels important about the moment, even if it's just an aesthetic importance of the moment. I am, of course, particularly interested in the visual aspect of storytelling when it comes to stories that journalists cover. And I do think very much that there is a storytelling quality. And I think it has pros and cons. I think sometimes the photograph lends itself to looking like it shows us a story that we don't really have a full understanding of. And I think it can also very much pull our attention in and with images, teach us a story that we didn't otherwise know and really pique our interest to learn more about what's happening, whether it's you know down the street or around the world. You know, you you just said a number of things there that I really want to unpack, especially it tells us a story that we may not know or understand the context of. So we're going to get into sort of the isolation of the individual frame. We're going to get into the relationship of the author's or the photographer's own biography to the images that are being taken. But I want to start with something that really bothered me, and I, I mean that in the best way, at the beginning of Conversations on Conflict Photography. You tell the story of a student in one of your classes who basically is looking at a very difficult picture and says, why should I care? Tell me tell me that story. Right. So this goes back a few years, and I'm teaching a class. This is at NYU. It's an upper-level class for undergraduates. It is not a required class. So everyone who's sitting in the room has chosen to be there. And it's a class where we spend a fair bit of time thinking about and look and studying conflict photography. So things like, what does it mean to take a picture of suffering? What does it mean to look at a picture of someone else's suffering? So we were at a certain point, maybe a month or five weeks into the semester, and the students in the class had been assigned reading uh, to study a famine that had occurred in Sudan in the early 1990s. And the way that I teach these classes is quite interdisciplinary. So the students were asked to learn the history of what was going on in Sudan. They were given readings that would help them understand that famine is very often shaped by political forces. It's not just an environmental situation. And of course, they were studying the photojournalistic and documentary coverage of what was happening there. And so I came into class after they'd done their homework. Um, and I I teach with images in the room and I was loading up the first image. And as you said, it's it's this very hard, difficult image. It's a black and white photograph of a man at a feeding center in Sudan. And he is emaci- I mean, severely emaciated. And part of what makes the image so difficult is that 
you not only see him and kind of skin and bones uh, of his body, but you can understand how weak he is because he's not standing. He's crawling on the ground. Um, so it's, you know, it's a, it's all an image that forces you to grapple with just how awful human suffering can be. And I was about to start the conversation with my students that day. And just as you said, a student raised his hand and sort of prefaced the whole conversation by saying, I, I understand why you're putting up that picture, but it's such a downer and I have nothing to do with that man's suffering. So why should I care about him? Um, and the student went on to add that he had plans that night and that he didn't want to be put in a bad mood by having to look at such a terrible image. Um, and so it was a real stunner of a moment for me. I had never, ever had a student say something like that before. You know, in part, I think, because they've all chosen to be there in this class right. studying these tough issues, it felt tone deaf. It felt really provocative. It felt really privileged. But I reserved any judgment uh, of the student, and we just had a conversation about it as a class. And the conversation was productive, but it didn't really make me feel better. I just felt like what what's going on that, you know, this, this bright young student sounds so apathetic. And I kept thinking and thinking and thinking about this moment, right? You know, and as a teacher, you ask, like, what have I, have I done something wrong? What can I do better? How do I help this situation? And on the way home from teaching that day, and this is just one of those like coincidences that occurs, I, I bumped into a friend of mine who is a photographer who covers conflict globally. And I told him this story and it was really his reaction to my story that, that kind of turned on a light bulb for me. Cause I, I had totally expected him to say, what a terrible student you have, or, you know, something along those lines. And instead what he said was, I really don't understand why you think there's anything surprising about this. Like, why are you shocked at all? I hear that comment so frequently. And that was the kind of the, the light bulb, right? That I, I thought to myself, if this is really such a common reaction, then what's the point of taking these pictures? What's the point of distributing these pictures? Um, and so that was the starting point. It was really to try to answer this question of what's the point of conflict photography? Um, and then, as you said, from there, it becomes a deep dive into the industry, the individuals, the distribution practices, the physical risks, the emotional tolls, the censorship that exists at various levels in various parts of the world, um, and a whole bunch of issues like that. Mm -hmm. You mentioned in the book that you know, images have become so ubiquitous. I mean, we, we can't get away from Instagram or the, the, the way everybody whips out their cell phone camera just because they've inhaled. You have a term in there. You, you wonder whether or not we've become empathetically bankrupt. Yeah. Have we? Have we? And, and is, it the, is it the result of too many images? I mean, I don't know if there's a, a solid answer on it. I, I think it can be harder today to sit with individual images or even individual news stories because 
I mean, because not even just the news landscape, but I would say the information landscape is so much more crowded than ever before in history. Um, and, and because many of these platforms do lend themselves very readily to imagery. So we're taking in many, many more images, um, as you're saying. At the same time, I don't believe that photography has lost its power to move people. Um, I do think there are times when images will rise above the noise. And some of that has to do with how the information landscape functions, right? Whether an image has the opportunity to move up through news channels or to go viral if it's outside of traditional legacy news organizations. But I think it is a real question, right? Is there just so much? And, you know, in some regards, is there just so much doom and gloom out there that it's hard to feel in response to every single images? Yeah, there probably is some of that. There probably is a kind of diminished empathetic response if you are looking at these images all of the time. But I don't think that empathy is gone. Well, I'm glad to hear that because there are times I wonder, I watch my own students when they are just casually looking at their phones and I'm amazed by the speed, just the way that they're all, you know, swipe, swipe, swipe. They spend, if it's a deep moving moment for them, a second or two on an image and then they're on to the next one. I wonder if we haven't been reinforcing a kind of cursory glance instead of the ability to pause and consider the image in front of us. You have all sorts of people in conflicts on um, conflict photography. Are there interviews in there that that strike you as being more profound or, or more important than others? Is, is there one that you call out and say, this is one you got to read? <laughs> well, of course, I want everyone to read every <laughs> interview. Every, in every, every single one, of course. But if, if there's one you had to call out first. I mean, one of the things I did, I tried to do was to strike a balance so that there wasn't a ton of repetition. You know, I was interested in the, the variety of experiences. I mean, I would say there is an interview with a now retired, but a very long time wire service photographer named Alexander Joe, who is, he covered, um, he moved around a few different bureaus in Africa and he is himself a black a local African man. And I found it very humbling and enlightening to listen to his experiences. And I found it extremely distressing as well to hear him talk about this kind of longer career that he had and often being feel, feeling like he was treated as kind of second rate, um, or his opinions weren't as highly valued. He was working for a major Western organization. And just to give one example, he was covering an enormous amount of war and famine. And he went to his editors, as he tells it at one point, and said, I need a break. Like, this is, this is too much. And essentially had his request ignored, um, which I think is a very, very dangerous thing. You know, and I, the industry has is much more aware today of emotional stress, but the fact that someone was able to come forward and say, this is too much, I really need a break, and then not to receive that break is, is quite stunning to me. And that brings up a, a number of issues and, and a good way to jump over to your brand new book, Through the Lens, The Pandemic and Black Lives Matter. 
but before I get to the question about worker safety, you know, and, and the health of photographers, tell me why this book occurred to you. When did this start and why did you put pandemic and Black Lives Matter together? Right. Great question. So I, as with the previous book, Conversations on Conflict Photography, I'm always thinking about what are the what are the challenges that visual journalists are facing? Um, and 2020 raised two enormous headlines for us. And essentially, it's the subheading of my book, right? It's the pandemic and Black Lives Matter. And I would say those are the two biggest stories of 2020. Mm-hmm. And they also were, in some regards, game changers inside the industry of photojournalism, um, presenting a whole host of new challenges and ethical questions. So I mean, the book really started in spring of 2020, although I didn't yet know the book was starting at that moment, but I, I'm i in New York and we were in a lockdown. And so I was you know, living a very isolated life, but in touch with many of my photojournalist friends and colleagues, and initially was hearing from them things like the coverage is incomplete. Uh, and just to remind, you know, the majority of images we were seeing in the early days of the pandemic in the United States were showing us things like face masks and gloves and face shields. And in many cities, especially, there was a lot of imagery of emptied out streets right. and shuttered right. up businesses. And part of that was because, you know, it, the photo editors who are, who are assigning photojournalists are they... How dangerous is this? How close in proximity to people who potentially have COVID do we put our journalists? But I was hearing from a number of photojournalists saying, you know, the severity of what is happening is so enormous and we're not showing any of the images of like death and real suffering um, or even just dying or in, in New York City, even um, there was such an overflow of death that the hospitals could not keep up and they parked a bunch of trucks alongside the hospitals and they used them as temporary morgues and photojournalists couldn't get close to those trucks, right? So they're not getting inside the hospitals. They can't get access to these temporary morgues. And some of this is because there are privacy regulations that restrict access. But again, one of the critiques that gets made by those who advocate for, you know, we should have this this really tough imagery from inside the hospitals. They'll say under the Trump administration, some of those privacy regulations were relaxed, but the administration didn't relax any of the regulations that would have eased access for media to go in and photograph. Um, So this was going on. And then, you know, roll forward a little bit of time in May 25, 2020, George Floyd is murdered, a, a video goes viral, and the United States erupts in what become the largest protests in U.S. history. And that it itself raised these other questions about visual coverage, uh, because shortly after the protests began, photojournalists started hearing requests from at least a subset of protesters saying, don't take pictures that show my faces, um, which is which is a very interesting and almost counterintuitive thing, right? The idea of a protest is that it derives its power from its visibility. And then to go out in public um, and put your body in a public space and stand there for a movement, but but then also say, 
don't capture my face. This is this was new, right? This was new, and photojournalists had to kind of grapple with this, right? Do we do we give up our legal right to take pictures in public spaces? Do we listen to the requests of protesters? What are protesters worried about? Why do they not want their faces shown? So it was sort of the collision of these two headline stories and the variety of challenges and ethical concerns that they were both raising that led me to say, okay, let's let's really kind of unpack this landscape. And and as with the last book, it, it turned into so much more than just those two kind of two specifics that I talked through about, let's say, visibility and privacy. It became about many, many, many issues that occurred through the landscape of 2020. Let's take just a quick break. We hope very much that you are enjoying today's episode. The very fact that you are listening to this podcast suggests that photography means a lot to you. And if that's the case, you might want to have a look at Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. We truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit readframes.com to find out more about our publication. And now, back to today's conversation. And, you know, the genius of both books is that they are interviews. So you don't have just one argument, one point of view. You've got people uh, unpacking it for themselves, sitting right next to a chapter where somebody else is unpacking it a little bit differently uh, and maybe even not agreeing with, with the chapter before it. So you've got a number of voices in here. Let me bring up um, just two of the questions that are in the book and, and, you know, in both books, actually. And you mentioned both of these. The, the first is with the pandemic, the right to privacy versus the right to photograph. Both sides, I would say, morally have solid arguments. How do you find that middle ground? It's, it's, um, it's a tough one. I mean, I think, let's say if we're going with the issue of privacy in a public space, right? So the protests, if you think about the civil rights era imagery, those images in part derive their power from the fact that we can see faces and can see emotions and can connect with individuals through expressions in their eyes. And so I think uh, in terms of figuring out kind of how do you handle this morally, one of the things I guess as a starting point is to understand why are protesters claiming don't take my picture. Um, and I would say it was not a majority of protesters who were saying this. It's a subset, but the subset felt that, um, and this would be a difference from the civil rights era of the you know second half of the 20th century. There are updates in surveillance technologies that allow authorities, let's say police or others, to potentially read identities in images. Um, and the fear was, if you take my picture and police read my identity, maybe I will be uh, a target or harassed or arrested later on, right? It was kind of a, a, a hypothetical, um, a fear of what could happen. But there were photographers who said, uh, I'm, I'm not comfortable with, with putting someone at risk. And there were other photographers who even said, I'm not really sure how great this risk is, but I'm not comfortable with making someone feel like I could be putting them at risk, right? I want to think about their mindset, right? And if you keep in mind the fact that these are protests that are speaking to both police 
violence at some level and also speaking to kind of just a longer, much longer history of institutionalized racism in the United States. Some photographers were quite sensitive to there's a lot of feeling here and there's a longer history here. And I want to be careful with that. No, let's say you talk a lot or, or your interview subjects talk an awful lot about context for their images in, in many of the chapters, not only the context of the situation, but what gender and race and class they bring as a photographer to taking the image. So, I mean, how do you even begin to wrap your mind around should I or should I not be taking this picture when you've got your entire cultural and personal history and the entire cultural and personal history of everyone in the frame? I, I mean, I think that's a question that is uh, by some being asked more, right? And and for someone who maybe stands outside of the cultural or ethnic or racial history that they are photographing, I am hearing more of those photographers say, I need to be more careful, right? Because maybe I am white and I approach this with a degree of privilege or a lot, a not a fully fleshed out understanding of how this might feel. So I'm going to be more careful in my photography. There are other photographers though, who are very, very wary of not of the position of being sensitive, but of the position of possibly giving up some of their rights as a photographer. And so others will say, I don't want to harm anyone, but let's remember the bigger picture here. And my role is to be a documentarian. My role is to capture history. And if I start self-censoring, that in and of itself is an issue, right? And they'll say photojournalism is a cornerstone of a democracy, and we can't start to let go of some of the rights that journalists have right now. And now nobody's talking about this in an actual legal setting. Nobody's legally um, going to take away these rights to take a picture. So it becomes much more, as you said, of a kind of moral or ethical question. There's no hard and fast rule on how does the photojournalist deal with this. So it becomes a very individual experience. Um, and I spoke with, in the book even, photojournalists who said, I, I know that my legal right is that I can take this picture, but I'm going to, you know, listen to the protesters and take the picture differently. And there's others who say, this is my job. I have to take this picture. Uh, if you, you know, if, if you don't want me to photograph your face, cover your face somehow. Right. And most of these people are wearing masks anyway, but it's a real question. And I think it's, it goes beyond the specifics of just, taking a picture at a protest. And it's really more thinking about this tension that exists at times between the subject and how you treat the subject of a photograph and also the history, the moment of what's going on at, at, at that time. You have in Through the Lens an interview with, and I'm, I hope I get the name right here, Denise Kennan, who is the photo editor at the Philadelphia Inquirer. And she says, you know, when we discuss which images to publish, I'll ask the photographer, what happened before this photo? What happened after? Did you have the subject's permission? Was the subject lucid? Those are considerations I think about. So tell me about all of the editors that you have interviewed, because one of the really fascinating things about your work is you're really examining that layer between my viewing the image and the person who shot it. There, there is another layer of either encouragement or censorship, depending on how you look at it, sitting between us. What's going on there? 
Yeah, and I think it's a very important layer to understand, and I think it's a layer that people often forget or just don't really know is there. That photographer, okay, sign photographers have their Instagram accounts, and they can be direct publishers, but when they're publishing with you know, news media, it is going through an editor. So yeah, I did want to understand what were some of those kinds of issues, not just putting the questions to the photographer, but putting them to the editor as well. Um, I think one of the things that I heard rather often, again, if we're sticking with this question of how do you cover protesters who don't necessarily want their picture taken, a, a general rule of thumb that seemed to come about is for the photojournalists should always identify themselves, right? Whether it's with credentials that can be uh, visible. The photojournalist, if they are taking a picture of a crowd, it's more often than not considered acceptable. You just take the picture. Um, there's no way you're going to get permission from everyone in that crowd. If you're taking a picture and it focuses on just one or two or three people, try to get their names and in asking them for their names by, you know, by way of saying, I'm a photojournalist with X newspaper. Can I get your names for this? If people say no, they are, let's say implicitly kind of not giving you permission. And then you can let your editor know and the editor can decide, or you can just move on and get a different photograph. Um, and I think this is some of what Denise Keenan is speaking to when she's asking those questions about what was going on, what was your interaction with the subjects? You know, were they lucid? What did they say? Did they get permission? And I think she's thinking through all of those questions, trying to package everything so that when it is published, whether in print or online, she herself has done the most responsible ethical version of it that she can. Well, many, many of the editors make the point is that they want their photographers to be really, really well-informed about where they are and what they are doing to fully contextualize the situation. But where is the line between an explicit photograph and sensationalism? Where, where does community standards or publishing standards get involved with something like this? I mean, I think sometimes when we're talking about explicit, it, it often will mean things about graphic imagery. Uh, and this is even, you know, this pivots, pivots us outside of the Through the Lens book a bit, but this has been a question that I've been hearing from people even with coverage of Ukraine, right? Obviously, uh -huh. Uh -huh. with thousands of people dying, there are very graphic images that are being created. Those are not necessarily images we're seeing every day. Uh, and part of that is, is exactly what you're saying, right? There's not always a need to put an image that is very graphic um, and which can be seen to then be sensational. So I think that often what publications and editors will say is, is this graphic image does the public need to see it to really understand the, the actuality of what is happening? Um, or can we show it in another way? Or can we describe it with words? And I think it's that kind, that question of newsworthiness, which is, of course, in and of itself, a very subjective thing. But there are times that editors will decide that a very graphic image does have a, so much newsworthiness that the concerns around is this sensational or is this too upsetting those concerns are outweighed by the newsworthiness of the image and i think those are frequently handled on case by case situations 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'm thinking of, of a couple examples. There is the famous photo, I, I forget at the moment who took it, of the woman who jumped from the Empire State Building back in the 1940s or early 50s. And um, she landed on a car and it was a really famous photograph, which you would never see published today. There was the story of the falling man from 9-11, which was published, then taken down because it was in, quote, poor taste, and then republished when there was a, a kind of storm. You say, wait a minute, that was a necessary photograph. Uh, and suddenly it reappears again. Have our tastes, our, our community standards, has our, sense, has our sympathy changed? I, I think there's often and certainly historically an imbalance in terms of the, the subjects in, in the graphic images. So I think there tends to be more of a public outcry against the publication of the image when the individual is just like us, quote unquote, right? So the falling man image, uh, which in and of itself is not actually graphic. Um, it's just an implied death, right? We know how that image, that, that story, if we're going to go to that word, we know how that story ends. And I think it was just the, the mentality was we Americans are under attack. How dare you, the media kind of take such a voyeuristic image, show us in such a bad light. How dare you kind of publish this man's final moments. And I think we don't tend to be quite so questioning when it's someone else's death who is very far away or who doesn't nearly so much look like us. And there's examples, um, you know, there was, there was imagery published from wars in the Middle East or imagery that has been published from crisis situations in various parts of Africa. And I, you know, I think that's a, it's a total double standard. I'm, there's a way of explaining it, but it's still a double standard. And I do think we continue to face these questions. Again, if we want to think about Ukraine, there was an image that was taken by Lindsay Adario, maybe about two or so weeks back that fronted the New York Times. And it was quite graphic. It was a woman, her two children, and a, and another man all killed. And it's, it's not common to show us death like that on the front page of the New York Times, and particularly deaths of children. And the, the logic was, this is very likely a war crime. This has a level of newsworthiness that we want to show the public. And it led to quite a bit of discussion around the image of, in and of itself. But I think that stands out to my mind as one of the recent very graphic publications, uh, pu publications of an image. You talk about in the book that we have so many images coming out now, but we also have a real resurgence of repression, of censorship, of efforts to make sure the images or the, the uh, messages behind the images don't get out. Why are we having that fight still at the level we're having now? I mean, globally, if we're thinking around the whole world, censorship is really an issue um, when it comes to journalism. And there's plenty of countries that are, whether officially or not, authoritarian in their actions towards journalists um, and really try to control the narrative. I mean, this was, this was one of the criticisms that people were saying in response to the Trump administration not easing the privacy regulations that would have let media show us 
more readily, especially in the early days of the pandemic, that this virus can be horrific and brutal, right? It was very rare to see those images in the beginning. I think in terms of uh, this kind of global nature, one of the things I was very interested in the new book Through the Lens was basically how many governments around the world adopted this idea of there's a pandemic, so we're going to restrict your activities even further, right? Be kind of, it came this, became this very easy way of restricting journalists' movements, restricting their access, restricting their abilities. And in both cases with photojournalists who I spoke to um, practicing outside the United States, both of them describe levels of censorship that are very distressing. One in uh, Wuhan, China, and the other uh, in Peru, which lo and behold, though the government was reporting COVID numbers that were not that high, all told, uh, I was going to say, lo and behold, it turns out they had the highest per capita COVID mortality rate in the world, and it was being underreported. And so the photojournalist I spoke with in Peru also describes a situation of censorship and of not being able to get that information out to a Peruvian public. Oh, man. Um, One more question, and then then I want to turn over to uh, some of your other projects. In both books, the issue of dignity comes up. The the photographer's respect for the dignity of the subject, but also the dignity of the uh, photographer, uh, him or herself. Tell me what your take on on that issue is. How does how does the issues of dignity influence the world of the photojournalist? It's a question that I think has been more and more a part of the conversation, particularly when we're saying, what does it mean to take a picture of someone else's suffering? And, you know, there was a line um, by someone I interviewed for the conflict photography book. Uh, He's the former emergencies director for Human Rights Watch. And he was talking about uh, why dignity matters uh, in certain kinds of images. And he said, if we're documenting someone who has already survived a horrific trauma, I don't want to re-traumatize them by creating an undignified image. Um, And in the particular case he was talking about, it was a young woman who had been beaten and essentially kind of dowried into child marriage. And Human Rights Watch was doing a project on this and documenting this young woman's story and decided to frame it as a very beautiful, very respectful portrait of her. I think in terms of, you know, dignity and the newer book, one of the questions that I pitched to an American photographer, Spencer Platt, I I essentially said, do you think about the subject's dignity more because you're covering right here at home? And, you know, do you somehow consciously or not seem to have more respect when the subjects are close to you? And his answer was very honest. He said, um, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, basically, the answer should be no, I should treat everyone the same. And at the same time, now that I'm covering here right at home and seeing this suffering here right at home, I'm really thinking about what are tropes of suffering? What's the role of these tropes of suffering? How do we 
treat visually uh, certain people different from others, depending on where they are in the world or depending on their socioeconomic status. And he was very thoughtful about forcing himself to grapple with this question, both as a question at large, but also as a question in his, in his own work. Uh, everybody, these two books you've got to get, just plain and simple. Conversations on Conflict Photography uh, is the first one. Then Through the Lens, The Pandemic and Black Lives Matter is the second one. The series of interviews from the photographer's point of view, from the editor's point of view, uh, some conversations about industry standards and practices and activism. These are necessary books for every single one of us that ever pick up a camera and turn it toward the street to try and document what's going on. But this is not the, the, the full extent of your work, Lauren. You've got another project out there, even you know beyond your teaching, called Lost Roles, Lost Roles America. I this is a marvelous project. I, I'm just as, you know really juiced about this one. Tell me what Lost Roles America is. Okay, so this and I thank you for the description of the books and and for the question about Lost Roles America. I have a real warm spot for this project. <laughs> it's. And on, it's an online archive. Anyone can go. It's www.lostrollsamerica.com. And if much of my professional life is dominated by thinking about conflict and crisis, Lost Rolls America is really just pure and simple, a celebration of the role that photography plays and has played in all of our lives, not in a professional sense, but in a very personal sense. Um, so I'll explain to you how it works. It's it's called Lost Roles because many people, maybe all of us somewhere, you know, tucked in a drawer or a cabinet or an attic has some role of film. And I'm talking analog film where you took the pictures and then you put it back in the little canister, the roll of film, and you just never got it developed. Um, and so what we ask at this archive is if you come across your old roll of film, send it to us, right? And it's, you know, the address is on the website, send it to us. We get the film processed for you. We digitize the negatives. We mail you back your negatives and we never look at anything. We never look at your pictures and we send you a link to your digitized images. And there you, you literally are kind of looking at your own past, right? On your screen, these images you've never seen before because you never had the film developed. And what we ask is pick one or two images that really speak to you for whatever reason, right? And it, for one person, it might be, this is a powerful composition, but for another person, it might be, this is a picture of my three-year-old and now she's 33 and this floods me with happy memories of her toddler days. And we, so we ask you to pick one or two of those images. We have a series of prompts that ask you, you know, when was this picture taken? Where was this picture taken? What memories does it bring back? What do you hope others see in the picture? And then once you fill out that form, it moves into the archive, moves into the public archive. And the archive itself is, in my opinion, this really beautiful visual tapestry of America's kind of visual past brought together um, with the memories that these images can summon forward. So there's contributions to the archive that are sometimes really, really sweet, right? Like I said, like the, you know, the picture of the toddler uh, who's now all grown up. Uh, and sometimes they're 
they're a little bit wistful, right? A picture of, we have people who've submitted images and they'll say, this is my father who passed away five years ago. This brings back such warm, you know, but but wistful, nostalgic memories as well. And lots of images of family, of pets, of travel. I think one of the things that you realize when you look at the archive and particularly when you read people's memories is despite the fact that we live in what feels like very polarized times, when you look at what really kind of at a very core level, what matters to people, there's so many threads of unity and overlap that you see in this archive that I, I find it a very beautiful experience of connection in a world that sometimes feels very divisive. It is an entirely heartwarming and, and beautiful sight. And I'm you know, looking at the images right now. Some of them you know, have got light leaks. Some of them are fine art. I mean, the, 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 it's the whole range there. It's really, really beautiful. Uh, Lauren, this has been wonderful. This, this has been really, really special. I, as you know, I am a great fan of both Conversations on Conflict Photography and Through the Lens. They have been important books to me and to my students. The work you're doing is essential. And everyone, please check it out. Lauren, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for all your questions. Uh, and this was a real pleasure. Frames. Because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com.